to get it started up, I was, you know, I was thinking earlier this week about, you know, what I do for a living. And anybody that kind of knows me and knows me well knows that I'm a pest control technician. And if nobody else knows, Brian knows. <laughs> but yeah, I'm a pest control technician. But that's one of those things that, you know, most people can know that they know me well because it's a common knowledge. And uh, now not only can I tell you what I do, but I can also tell you some specifics about the job, which is a good thing to be able to do. But, um, you know, for me, I think one of the best parts of doing the job is actually being able to go into somebody's house and then see an issue they're having and get to tell them and give them answers as to what's going on and ways that I can help them. And I think that's one of the most rewarding parts of that job is just the ability to be able to do that. You know, and all that is good and well, but at the same time, like I said, it's common knowledge. And the thing is, I can kind of go around the room and I can figure out what each of us probably do for a living just based off of common knowledge. And even if we didn't know each other well, then I could ask some basic questions and figure out by common knowledge what you do for a living. And that's it's because it's easy for us to establish. It's easy for us to establish something that is common knowledge. But the thing that's not common knowledge is harder for us to understand is why do we do that? Why, like, what is it that keeps pushing us to get up every day and to keep doing that thing? Because there has to be a reason for it. And um, that reason is going to be your motivation. And, you know, for me, if somebody asks me, what's your reason of getting up every day and going to work and, and, and you know, working all day and doing that? My, my personal reason is because it provides for my family. You know, yes, I enjoy the job. I enjoy the career of doing it. But I also get to provide for my family and you know, that, that's a real rewarding part, but that's one of my biggest whys. And the thing is, if we don't have a why, then we don't have a what. Because if we don't know why we're doing something, we're going to lose motivation and we're going to stop doing it. We're not going to have motivation to keep pushing. So if somebody were to ask you, well, what religion are you? Hopefully everyone here would say, I'm a Christian. And that's common knowledge. Somebody could, could, could know that about you just by knowing who you are. But do you have such a quick answer when somebody says, well, why are you a Christian? Because that's when we get outside of common knowledge and we get into the personal side of it. So what is it that pushes you to stay true to God, even though the whole world and everybody around you is trying to push you away from him? What is it that keeps pushing you to keep faithful to him? Because that's going to be an important aspect. And I, I came to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 29. Now, starting in verse 27, it says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And so they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. In verse 29, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. So with that scripture, the context that we can see is that Jesus wanted his followers to know who he was. They want, he wanted them to, to have their own reasoning of following him. That's why he specifically said, who do you say that I am? So he established what does everybody else say, but what do you think? So he established that pretty early on with them. And I think it was important that he done that because he wanted them to not only know who he is, but he wanted them to also accept who he is. By their own standards, because if they would accept that, they would have their why 
Why do I follow him? Why have I left everything behind to follow this man? There's got to be a reason. And that's that establishment of that. But if we were to continue on uh, with Mark 8 verses 31 through 33, it says that he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke this word openly. But then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So at this point, Peter's saying, no, that's not right. That can't be right. So he's, even though he just expressed who he is, now he's rebuking him. And so it goes on to say, uh, let's see, it goes on to say, uh, verse 33, but he had turned around being Jesus. And he looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter now, saying, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So like I said, Peter had just established his why. Because he had recognized that Jesus was the Lord of his life. He said, you are the Christ. So he recognized that. He established that. But then immediately Peter questions his lordship. Because even though Jesus said this is what's going to happen, he rebukes him. He's like, no, that can't be right. So even though he said, you are the Christ, you are Lord he immediately almost takes that back by his actions and what he says next. So he almost loses grip because he wasn't stable in his why. He knew the what, but he wasn't stable in his why. And this will also show up again later in Peter's life when he would deny Christ three times as he is being taken for trial. Because Peter, again, lost grip of his why. Because his, his fleshly fear wasn't as strong as his why am I following Christ? So he ran away and he denied Christ three times. So we see in that that Peter would continually lose his grip on his why. And, you know, me personally, I often have to be reminded of my why. That's something I think we all struggle with. We all have to be reminded. And I think oftentimes we'll feel ashamed of ourselves. And, you know, just mainly because we have to have that reminding. And we, we get that shame building up. But I want to, to read about a really strong Christian man or godly man that was confident and very faithful in God. So if you were to look at 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, and we're going to read a little bit here, but it's verses 20 through verses 40. We're reading 20, 20 verses of scripture. But 1 Kings 18 verses 20 through 40, it starts and says, So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel he gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel and Elijah came to all the people and said how long will you falter between two opinions if the Lord is God follow him but if Baal and Baal was one of the false gods that was commonly worshipped back then but if Baal then follow him but the people answered him not a word and then Elijah said to the people I alone am left a prophet of the Lord so that's an important part there he says, I alone. He's standing by himself for our God. And then it goes on to say, but Baal's prophets are 450. So to visualize that for a moment, you have one man standing, standing against 450 of the enemy's followers and supporters. So that paints a, a, a picture of the fear that could set in on us because if that was us, Standing in front of that many people who are disagreeing with us, a lot of us are going to back down. But we see that that's not what Elijah does. Verse 23, it says, therefore, let them give us two bulls 
and let them choose one bull for themselves. So now he's kind of getting kind of cocky with it. He says, okay, give us two bulls and you get to pick. You pick which one you want to use. You get the better choice, your first choice. You get to take that. It says, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull. I'll take your leftovers. And then he says, uh, lay, uh, yeah, uh, hang on. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And then verse 24 says, then you call in the name of your gods. And I'll call in the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He's the true God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourself, prepare it first, for you are many. And call in the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So in verse 26, they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. For there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made, and it was so at noon that Elijah mocked them, and he said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's meditating or he's... Be- so like at this point, he's kind of mocking him. He's like, you're crying out to your God. Maybe, he, maybe he's meditating. Maybe, he's, maybe he ain't paying attention. Maybe he's sleeping on you. That's, kind of, that's exactly what he's doing. He's getting really like puffed up at this point because they've been praying for a long time. So he says either he's meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as that was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Verse 30, it says, Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. He's already expecting God to show up. He's calling everybody to come near to him. So all the people came near and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the, uh, the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had came, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large, large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said, Fill four water, part, water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to light a burnt or light on fire a wet piece of wood, but it's about impossible. So now he's he, he's trying to show that much more how powerful our God is. So he says, fill four water parts with water, pour it on the burnt sacrifice and the wood, and then do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. He's really shown off, really, really confident in God. So they do it the third time. So the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that, the, that his people may know that you are the Lord and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And then verse 38, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed them, the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones. And the, like he didn't even leave the altar behind. Everything was consumed by this fire. 
And it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And verse 40 says, Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. So that whole picture was you have one man versus 450. He does all this mocking, all this smack talking. I mean, he's smack talking for God. That's what he's doing. He does all this smack talking. When God shows up, then he call, he's talking to these 450 people that was against him and said, now go kill those leaders that was telling you to follow Baal. And they went and executed them. So it shows that momentum switch and it shows how much of them trusted our God after that. How many of them changed their ways and, and went to God. So, you know, it's safe to say that Elijah was this very confident man, very powerful, bold man of God. Easy to say that. So it's hard for us to imagine that Elijah, the same man that just done all this, could struggle with his faith. But that's exactly what we see happen in First Kings 19 verses 1 through 8. So it starts out saying, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me. And more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So this is a threat. You have one person putting a threat on his life. He just faced 450 people that was against him. But this one person puts a threat on his life. In verse 3 it says, When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. And then he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Verse 4 says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. So now he's getting like depressed, suicidal type of thoughts. He prayed that he might die and he said, it is enough now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. So we see a huge shift in the faith of, that this man had. Now you get to verse five and this was reassurance. God kind of sending reassurance at this point. So it says that he lay and slept under a broom tree and suddenly an angel touched him and he said to him, arise and eat. He's essentially saying, take care of yourself. Get up, eat, take care of yourself. So then he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coal. So he even provided the food, provided the food for him to get up and eat. And he gave him a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and then he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and drank and he went and the strength of that food. For 40 days and 40 nights, as far as uh, Horeb, the mountain of God. So what we see was this really powerful, confident man of God had this huge shift in his faith. And he lost all that confidence he had. He lost all that momentum and that power that he had. And he was probably the same thing like I was talking about. He's probably starting to feel ashamed because he knew he was such a strong man of faith. And now here he is. Now here he is having suicidal thoughts, not one to live anymore. So here he is telling God to kill him. But that, that, the point of that is, it doesn't matter how strong in your faith you are, you're not invincible. We are all subject to falling into the devil's lies, and we all do at some point or another. And that, like, that's the, the, the thing why we have to remember 
why do we keep following God? We have to keep that in the back of our mind because Satan's going to keep trying to attack you. Even though it, when you're strong in faith, you feel invincible. You feel like nothing can touch you. But you're going to hit some rough spells. It just happens to all of us. We hit rough spells in faith. And that's when the devil really tries to attack us. And, you know, I'm going to tell a story from the day because, you know, like I said, I've been doing pest control for a few years now. I feel confident doing pest control. I feel like I know what I'm doing. And today I'm outside. I'm just spraying the house, doing my normal thing. And I come across the corner, and as I'm spraying at the foundation, here come a bunch of yellow jackets out of the ground. Did not expect them to show up, but there they came out of the ground. And ten to nine is in my ankle or not, I ran from these yellow jackets because I'm not standing around for them to lock me up. Because like I said, I'm not expecting them. So I'm not, I'm not dressed for the job. I'm just in my regular you know, uniform, and I, I run because I know that I'm not protected. So when I finish up this service, I come back to, to my truck, and I put on a bee suit. And I am so thankful that this man ordered a bee suit for me because <laughs> at this point, I had two yellow jackets nests today that I had to deal with. And if it wasn't for the bee suit, I would not have had the confidence to go and take care of these uh, yellow jackets. But the thing was, with this bee suit, I'm protected from head to toe. I mean, I'm absolutely protected. I know that I'm protected. That's literally what this thing is built for. But as I start treating these nests and these things come straight at me and they like to get at your face. And my thing is, you start overthinking because it's just a net right here. And you think it's going to find its way and get my neck. (laughs) And when they're at your face, even though you know you're protected, you hear them buzzing right here. It is very intimidating. Extremely intimidating. So even though I know I'm protected, I still back up. And honestly, I still run from them. Even though I know I'm protected, I still run from them. Because it's intimidating. I can't, your, my mind won't let me get past that. So I still back away. I still do that. And even though I know I'm protected, the same way that bee suit protects me from the bees, God protects us from the evil of the world. He protects us the same way, but every time that the enemy gets close and he gets in our face, because that's exactly what he does, just like those yellow jackets. He gets as close as he can to to, to intimidate you. Anything he can do to intimidate you, even though you're protected, he will still intimidate you because he's right there. And you feel like he's so close that he can get to you. But you know deep down he can't. But your mind does not let you believe that. Your faith doesn't almost let you believe that sometimes. You know, and I, 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 I wonder... Because before I worked here, I never had a bee suit. So I, I look back and I'm thinking, how in the world did I ever do yellow jacket treatments without a bee suit? Because now that I know what protection is available for me, I'm not going to go back to going unequipped. Because I know that I have the protection readily available for me. So I know I have to suit up. So knowing my why includes... Knowing why I trust, I trust that beast to, to keep me safe, but I can also trust God to keep me safe. So knowing my why is knowing why I trust God. And I came to 1 Peter 3.15. And it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason uh, that, that hope is in you with meekness and fear. 
I want to read that one more time just to really emphasize it because I think it's uh, the most intri- the integral. Is that the word I'm trying to think of? And the most important word, uh, verse out of this is 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready. At all times, be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We have to know why. We have to know our reason. We have to know why do we come to church? Why do I, why do I pray? Why do I open my Bible? Why do I study? Why do I trust God? Why do I follow him? So in order for us to, to, to follow him, and, and that'd be our what, we have to know the why. Because without the why, like I said, we have no what. If we lose the grip of what he's done for me and that's why I follow him, then I, my, my faith will fall short because the enemy will stay in my face. Keep getting me to, to, to push back. So my challenge for, for us as a church is to write First Peter 3.15 on our hearts and just reflect on it over and over again. As life keeps pressing against us, keep reflecting on it. So that we can remember often, what is my reason? Because if we keep going back to this, and we know I always have to be ready. I always have to be on the defensive. And it sounds weird being a Christian, I have to be on the defensive. But we have to be on the defensive. Because, you know, you can only block so much. Sometimes you've got to just bust through. You have to stay defensive. And you have to be ready and willing to give your reasons. So that, that's what I think we need to do as a church, just collectively. Individually, it's phenomenal for your faith. But as a church, as a whole group together, we need to remember, why do we have the vision in our church that we have? Why do we follow that? Why, what, what purpose is God calling us to do with that vision? And if we remember that, we'll stay strong. And if we remember that individually, we stay strong in our faith. So that's my challenge for us at the church. Just remember 1 Peter 3.15. Does anybody have any questions, anything to add to, to, to what we talked about?